If you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be continuing on in our series in Philippians. If you're new and visiting, we are in the middle of a series in Philippians. I trust you've been encouraged. I know I've been encouraged just digging deep into Paul's heart in this letter and we're looking forward to drawing out all the other gold nuggets that God's got stored for us in here. If you join us this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you. There is something powerful, really powerful in this passage, something that, that if you grasp, it will completely change the direction of your life in this word this morning. It will reframe your challenges and it will give you a fresh perspective. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 1. Verse 12, I'm going to read and then pray. Philippians 1.12 I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your throne and praise you this morning, the God who works through weakness. Lord, weakness is not an obstacle to your working, Lord. It is your preferred means. And Lord, this morning, I come before you in weakness and in need of your grace to present this word. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me that you would speak to us your words of life, your words of truth, and that we'd be changed by them, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start this morning with a question, and that is, have you ever missed an opportunity? Have you ever missed an amazing opportunity? Uh, There's a notable story in my own personal life, many of you are familiar with it, when uh, I was studying to become a doctor. I wanted for many, many years to become a doctor. I felt that this was what God was calling me to do. I felt convinced this was his plan for me. And I'd gone to sit the test to become a doctor somewhere in my final year of high school. And I hadn't got that good marks. I felt I wasn't that prepared. And so I decided in my first year of university, I'd started studying physiotherapy, that I would sit the test again. So I Gave considerable time to study and prepare for it. I spent about six months training and going over practice papers, and I felt I was ready and prepared. 
And the morning came to when the test was due to arrive and so I jumped on the train. I was living in Wollongong at the time. I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning on the train, travelling up to Sydney, got a connecting service on the light rail across to Wentworth Park Stadium where the test was meant to be. You've got to understand, usually there's thousands of people sitting this test and I arrived and there's no one. And I thought, oh, it's, it's okay, I'm early, I'm ahead of schedule, this is fine, not a problem, and I'm walking around trying to find where the entrance for the exam is and I can't find it. And time goes on and I'm getting more and more frantic as I'm wondering it's close to the starting time. Am I, am I in the wrong place? And I'm on the phone to Dad. He's like, no, you're in the right place. This is correct. I check my ticket. I'm in the right place. I'm frantically asking, does anyone know where this test is? And I pull over this one man who's jogging and I say, mate, you've got to help me. Where's this test? And he looks at me and he thinks. He says, yeah, I remember. Yeah, heaps of people for a test right here two days ago. And I checked on my ticket, exam ticket, and lo and behold, I had misread the date and turned up two days late. Um, Now, in the sovereignty of God, God had other plans clearly for me, and I can see how he was working out. There was lots of awkward conversations for the family members praying for me, calling out, hey, Brendan, how'd you go on the exam? And it's like, well, you know about that. I'm studying to be a doctor, can't even read a ticket. Um, but um, something as simple as misreading a ticket leading to missing an opportunity. Friends, in this text here this morning, there is an opportunity. I don't want you to miss it. An opportunity that is so easily left behind and overlooked. An opportunity to join in something that God is doing. We're going to be looking at Paul as he addresses the Philippians. We're going to be looking at at his example in serving as he really seeks to encourage and equip them. And as we unpack his example, I think we're going to see an opportunity for us. This message uh, I've entitled Captivated by Christ. And uh, for those that take notes, we've got three points. Point number one, his freedom. Point number two, his joy. Point number three, his Lord, but three points and one hope. And the hope for, that I have for us this morning is that, that you would not miss the freedom and joy of serving Christ in the advancement of the gospel. I don't want you to miss it, guys. The freedom, the glorious freedom and the joy, the, the, the sweet joy to be found in serving Christ in the advancement of the gospel, serving Christ to see the gospel go forward. So let's begin by unpacking point number one, his freedom. Just by way of context, Paul is in Rome. We know this because he's been guarded by the imperial guard. That's uh, also that at the end of the book, book ends the book, there's a greeting from Caesar's household. Um, so we know that Paul is in Rome. And Paul is awaiting trial and anticipating his deliverance. He anticipates that Christ will be, regard, uh, will be sorry, honoured regardless of whether he lives or dies. So this is most likely Acts 28, the circumstances of Acts 28, as Paul is in prison awaiting his trial, uncertain of whether he will live or die. In light of this, we know the years approximately AD 61, and Emperor Nero is on the throne, and there's an increasing suspicion and animosity towards Christians. Paul is in prison, and though he sees himself as being there for the defense of the gospel, 
the Romans have him in prison on really two charges. The first charge is, is Christianity a legitimate branch of Judaism? And secondly, can someone be a Christian without committing treason against Caesar? Can you hold Christ as king and not be committing treason against Caesar? Well, not only is there context of Paul in prison, but Paul is addressing a letter to Philippi, and we need to understand something of what is happening in Philippi. Philippi is a church, or has a church, the Philippian church, and that church loves Paul. It probably loves Paul as much, as, or if not more, than any of the other churches. It's a church that has supported Paul, both financially and in prayers. It's a church that has sacrificed much to support Paul. They've aligned themselves to Paul politically, and they've sent Epaphroditus to come and comfort Paul and encourage Paul. And it's through Epaphroditus that Paul hears about what's happening in Philippi. Paul hears that the church in Philippi is having some trouble, is having some difficulty. They have opponents to the gospel. They have Christian people who are are stirring up trouble amidst their church. More than that, they have trouble from Rome, increasing suspicion and oppression. And so the church in Philippi, as they hear that Paul is in prison, and as they know that it's uncertain whether Paul will live or die, they're, they're concerned. They're worried for Paul. They're wondering, if our great hero of the faith, Paul, dies, what will happen to the gospel? Will our opponents be victorious over us? Will the gospel cease to spread? They are anxious and they are concerned. And so Paul writes to the Philippians to encourage them. He wants to show them that they are suffering similar things to him and yet God is working. He says at the end of our chapter in verse 29, For it has been granted to you, church in Philippi that is, that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's saying, I want you to see how God's apportioned for you to go through the same things that I'm going through. I'm telling you that I'm going through right now. He's he's out to encourage them, but he's also out to equip them. He wants to give them resources and equip them. He says in, in verse 27, and I'll read it briefly for you. He wants to equip me. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or, and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul's hoping to equip them to stand firm in the faith of the gospel and to encourage them about what they're going through. Well, with this in mind, let's read uh, the first verse of our passage, verse 12. Why don't you read with me? Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Just as a note, that word brothers, it, it means brothers and sisters, it means siblings. Paul's not just talking about men, he's talking about men and women, he's talking about the church. And he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, it's really served to advance the gospel. It's really served. Why does he say that? Well, because it seems like it hasn't served to advance the gospel. It seems like it's been a great hindrance to the gospel. Paul is in chains, in prison, facing death. And Paul writes to the Philippians and 
and says, even though it seems as though this was a hindrance, it has caused the gospel to go forward. It has caused the gospel to be advanced. And he outlines two main ways in which the gospel has been advanced by his imprisonment. I think this is a really important note just to pause on, just for a moment and consider. And that is that we, we must never assume that we always know the way in which God intends to spread the gospel. You know, I've been thinking about it this week and I was reminded of a time when I was uh, serving in Indonesia amongst Muslims um, trying to reach them with the gospel and I, I met a man working in the Middle East with the same organisation as me and he was sharing about the work in the country that he's working in. It's a hardened country, a country that is so incredibly close to the gospel. Less than 0.01% evangelical Christians in that country. And he was talking about the mission that he'd been working with in that country and how he'd been part of a hospital. Missionaries about 40 years ago, or now about 45 years ago, had established a hospital in that country where they were ministering to the poor and, and ministering to those in need with the hope that they could love them and in due course share with them about Christ. And 40 years went by of these people faithfully serving Christ in that part of the world. 40 years without a single convert to Christianity. After 40 years, a a patient of theirs, they had uh, ministered to his child and he had left infuriated because he believed that they were trying to convert them in the course of their care. And so he went home, he grabbed his gun and he came back to the hospital and he shot dead two people from that mission. It's a tragedy, isn't it? On one level, it seems like unspeakable tragedy that 40 years of seemingly fruitless service only to have two people of the team after faithfully serving for so many years murdered. Well, the result of what had happened was that the community was in fact completely outraged. How dare we treat these people so poorly? that after so many years of faithfully serving us, we would go and kill them. And friendships were formed from this incident. Friendships that led to people coming to know Christ, leading to hundreds of people coming to know Christ. And now the majority of people who have turned to Christ in that country and are following him have come about in and through as a consequence of this event. Praise God, right? An amazing work of God in the face of difficult, tragic events. Friends, we cannot assume the way in which a sovereign God will work to spread his gospel. He is sovereign, he is working. And Paul outlines two ways in which he sees the gospel being spread in and through what has happened to him. The first is, is, is outlined in verse 13. He says it this way. He says, I want you to know what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And Paul says the whole imperial guard, the praetorium, literally those that were closest guarding the palace in Rome, uh, 
and uh, the, the emperor who resides in the palace. The most elite soldiers in the Roman army with more pay, with more prestige, as many as 9,000 at any one time guarding the palace in Rome. And Paul says it's become known all throughout the imperial guard and to everyone else, what? That my chains are for Christ. Well, who's this everyone else? Well, in 422, at the very end of the letter, Paul says to the saints that are in Philippi, he says, all the saints send greetings to you. Especially who? Especially those in Caesar's household. So people that are living and working in the palace have become Christians in addition to the imperial guard and they send their greetings to the Philippians. People have become Christians. Now, when I was reading this this week, I almost felt like you can see the Philippian jailer in Philippi smiling, can't you? He hears that Paul's in prison and he goes, I know what he's up to here. I know what's going to happen here. Because he'd been on the receiving end of it, hadn't he? He'd come to know Christ through Paul. But it's interesting what Paul says here. He says, my chains are for Christ. Actually, literally, he says, my chains are in Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite expressions in all of his letters. And in one sense, he means that they've all come to know that I'm in prison for my Christian faith, right? I mean, he's been sharing the gospel with them. He's been like this Trojan horse for the gospel. Like, he's been taken into prison and moved to Rome, seemingly in bondage to face trial, but he's been sneakily sharing the gospel. I mean, the way it would work is that Paul would have been assigned to a guard looking after him for a shift of four hours. And you've got to imagine Paul in prison with with chains on his wrists as he writes this letter, this guard looking after him for four hours, but Paul rubbing his hands in glee because he has this guard's audience for four hours to preach the gospel to him in one sense that poor guard didn't know what he was in for. And so guards would come through and come through and Paul would just preach the gospel to them. He would share with them person after person after person preaching Christ. And so in one sense he means by I've been my chains are or I've been imprisoned for Christ, in Christ. He means people have come to know that I'm here because of my Christian faith. But in another sense, he means something even more pro- profound. Because when Paul speaks about being in Christ, he, he means being joined to Christ. He means being unified with Christ. And so he's saying, you know what? People have come to understand that my, my chains, my imprisonment, it's actually a reflection of my obedience to Jesus Christ. I'm actually really bound to him. Paul is saying, you know, my chains are not really to this prison. My chains are not really to Caesar. They're to Christ. My life is completely in Christ's hands and people have come to know that. I'm here because God has directed me for the sake of the gospel. I am in Christ. I am joined to Christ. And Paul sees the opportunity, doesn't he, of his imprisonment. He sees the freedom of a Christian. You know, in one sense we have freedom, freedom from the law, like we don't have to do good things to, to please God because of what Christ has done on the cross. But in another sense, God gives us this freedom to serve him because we're joined to Jesus Christ through the Spirit. He took that penalty for sin once and for all and the Spirit now comes and joins us permanently to him. We're joined to Christ. And so the creator of the universe, the very one who spun the stars in the sky, who made everything that's around us, is always with us 
and in us. And so we have this freedom. We have this new life, this freedom to please God and to serve him abundantly without limitation. And so nothing can hinder his sovereign plan to use you. You see, there's no accidents with God, but sovereign, at times mysterious, plan. No accidents. Paul was thrown into prison, but he was thrown into prison in Christ. The sovereign hand of God was spreading the gospel. Paul was not captive. He was captivated. Paul was not a prisoner. He was a prison preacher. Paul was not misplaced. He was mission placed. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning. Are you going through tough times? Difficult relationship, maybe a marriage that's difficult. Are you going through health challenges? Maybe your physical health, your body is aching. Maybe mental health challenges, anxiety or depression. Maybe financial challenges, mortgage stress overburdened by life and financial commitments. Maybe you're going through faith challenges, a period of spiritual dryness. Let me encourage you, no mistake, a sovereign hand of God. There are no accidents with God. Your circumstances are not an accident with God. In the midst of difficulty, you are bound to Christ. Christ is with you. He directs your steps, your moments. You've been freed from spiritual death to glorify him. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, we've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And that newness of life, it begins now. If, Paul, if, if God could use whippings and imprisonment, for his glory. He can use you in the midst of your circumstances. Can difficult circumstances hinder and and make serving Christ difficult? Yes. But prevent? No. They cannot prevent. Why? Because you're joined to Christ. Just like Paul, whose chains are in Christ. You are not misplaced, friends. You are mission-placed by God. Paul's imprisonment not only led to the spread of the gospel in prison, but outside of prison as well. We read on in in verse 14, there's more. Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident and in the Lord by my imprisonment or by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Most of the brothers. So he's talking about the the church in Rome They've become confident in the Lord because of his chains. They've, they've seen that his chains are God's instrument to spread the gospel. And they can see that nothing can hinder God's work. Not even being thrown in prison can hinder God's work. And so they're full of this courage. They're like, well, well what can they do to us? They throw us in prison. It seems like the gospel goes forward in prison. So let's go and, and share with people about Christ. Let's help them to know Christ. And so all the brothers are emboldened and, and they're stepping out in faith to preach the gospel. Well, Where does this come from? Where does this courage, this strength come from? From Paul's example, yes, but ultimately, where? It says, having become confident, where? In the Lord. A confidence that comes from being in the Lord. They are joined to him. 
And because they are joined to him, and like Paul says at the very end of his letter in 4.13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. They are strengthened and they share the gospel without fear. I was thinking about this again this week. I would like a little bit of this without fear. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? The passage says that they share the gospel fearlessly. No fear at all in sharing the gospel because of Christ and his work in them. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go to speak to someone about Christ or like sharing about Jesus and sharing out and they ask maybe a difficult question or you just you start getting anxious and the sweaty palms and my, my, it's like my lungs become like this big and it's like every breath is like a little gasping breath and I can't like string out a sentence and I just feel embarrassed and it's awkward and I don't know about you if that's your experience in in sharing Christ with other people. But, but listen to what this says. They were emboldened to share the gospel without fear because they were strengthened in the Lord. You know, despite his circumstances in chains in prison, Paul finds this an all-surpassing freedom that regardless of his circumstance, he is free to serve Christ in the advance of the gospel. But amazingly, it's not just freedom it's joy as well. And so we come to point two, his joy. Read with me uh, verse 15. He says, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so it out of love, or do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former pre- proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And that's full on, isn't it? I mean, not only is Paul in chains in prison with, with like iron around his wrists, suffering in prison, not only that, but there are people preaching Christ with false motives. You know, there's some preaching in love. You know, they say... They see that he's defending the gospel, that he's in prison for Christ. They see the fruit of his ministry and they take up the slack. They get out there and they're, they're, they're preaching Christ, they're preaching the gospel. These are people that have understood what Paul's talking about in verse 9 about his prayer that love might abound more and more. Their hearts are full of love, love for Christ and love for others. And so they're out there just trying to talk to people about Christ. But there's others that are characterized by envy and selfish ambition. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching Christ. You know, Paul elsewhere is so harsh with people that don't preach a correct gospel, that preach Christ plus other things. Elsewhere, he calls them dogs. He says, I wish they wouldn't just preach circumcision as in cut their you know, flesh off, but they'd go the whole hog and cut the whole thing off. Paul is harsh with people that mess with the gospel. These are Christians. They're preaching the gospel. But they have an agenda. It's rivalry. Literally, it's selfish ambition. They're in it for themselves. Not sincerely. It's the opposite of the fruit of love, of purity, what we looked at last week. Well, what's their selfish ambition driven by? We're not told, but, but in Paul's letter to the church in Rome previously, he wrote this letter. He'd never been to Rome before, but there was these Jewish and Gentile Christians were really struggling to live together. 
the, the Jews on one hand wanted to force Gentile Christians to adopt all these Jewish practices. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, were just like, all grace, baby. And they're living in this way that's just really insensitive to the Jews around them. And so Paul's encouraging them to love one another, be considerate, never put a stumbling block in the way of a brother, be loving towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the thing is, Paul had never been to Rome. He was writing at the very beginning of the letter with his heart. that says, oh, I'd love to come and see what God's doing amongst you. I'd love to be there. But he'd never actually been before. And you can almost imagine the letter not achieving its intended effects of union in Christ, of reconciliation with one another. You can almost imagine how it might have been received with some jealousy and, and cynicism and skepticism of this apostle that they'd heard about other, in other places but never really experienced anything of his ministry before. And now they meet him for the first time in chains, in prison, in their city. This, this man who had written this strong letter of correction to them. And now he's in prison and you can almost imagine that for some Christians, they're thinking, this is an opportunity. Paul is in prison. God's rightly punishing him for his harshness. Here's an opportunity to preach Christ and gain some followers for myself. Here's an opportunity to get some followers to to my party so I might have some influence and power. You know, friends, there can be some people who preach the gospel but are driven by selfish ambition. It is possible to preach the gospel, but rather than having a heart that longs to see Christ glorified, have a heart that is full of selfish ambition, wanting a platform for my ministry. I believe as a church we experienced this back in our very earliest days. We were a public church plant. Many people knew about Sovereign Grace coming to Sydney and and we, we attracted a small group of people who, who were ambitious, who had an agenda. And they would say things to us like, like this, we are thankful to God for you. There are no other churches in Sydney faithfully preaching the gospel. And that's, so, that's not true. There's many churches here in Sydney faithfully preaching the gospel. But what lied behind their enthusiasm was a selfish ambition that they might be in a position of influence or power. And friends, there's nothing that destroys selfish ambition but lack of opportunity. And so these people quickly left. But my point is to, to, by way of warning and by way of encouragement, to help you see that, that there are times when even in gospel ministry we can be driven by not a love for Christ, but a love for self. And I mean... Don't I know that as someone who comes before you to preach that always the tension we feel is seeking your praise first rather than praise from Christ. But they take it an even step further. They're not just happy with selfish ambition. They're not just happy with gaining power and influence. They want more. They want to afflict him in prison. It says in verse 17, Paul says, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. They see Paul, and you can almost imagine them sneering you. 
Look at you, Paul. God's judgment upon your life. Look how the gospel is going forward without you, Paul. You are not needed. You have been cast aside by God. You're no longer necessary in the advancement of the gospel. They, they seek to afflict him. They seek to rub salt in his wounds as he is in prison. How would you respond to that? How would you react to that situation? You know, it doesn't take much to make me grumpy. Just get me hungry and tired and you'll get a grumble. I'll give you the silent treatment first. I'll go very quiet. And then you know you should suspect something's happening. And I'll start replacing sentences with little grunts and small words. Charlotte's smiling. She knows it. You know, like, uh, like you want something to eat? Like this, like, you know, I'm not even going to give you, you know, a full sentence of a response. It doesn't take much to make me grumble and complain. Listen carefully to how Paul responds to this. In prison, afflicted by these people. He says, what then? He's saying to the Philippians, how should we respond to this sort of thing? What's, what should our practice be? What should our response be to this sort of situation? When people are preaching the gospel from selfish ambition or preaching to spite us, what should we do? How should we respond? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an an amazing, mind-blowing response? In every way, Christ is proclaimed. Paul is so captivated by Christ. He's so so in love with Christ that he just wants to see the gospel go forward in pretense, even if it's just for show, Paul says, or in truth with integrity, with a good heart, with a right heart. Paul says, "Just, just let me see Christ preached. Just let me see people preaching Christ. And in that, I rejoice. Now we mustn't think now, oh yeah, Paul, you're just... You're just saying that. Let's not move over this too quickly. This is massive. This is not lip service to, to joy, rejoicing. Yeah, I'm rejoicing. No, this is genuine joy. I see Christ being proclaimed. I see the gospel going forward, even when people are doing it for spite towards me, and I rejoice. That's amazing grace, isn't it? Amazing, genuine joy, despite opposition. How is this possible? Where can we find joy like this? It's not that he's ignored the evil that's been done against him. No, no, no. Paul recognizes the evil that's been done against him. But Paul has given himself to serving Christ in the advance of the gospel. And this leads me to my third point, his Lord. You know, Paul had seen so clearly the glory of Christ. On that road to Damascus, the Lord revealed himself to Paul and he'd seen the glory of Christ. I, th- I think as Christians, we can become all too familiar with who Christ is and how glorious he is, can't we? We can become all too familiar with knowing him and the privilege of knowing him. Just think about it with me for a moment. I mean, 
triune God, all-loving creator, eternally satisfied in and of himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And just because he's a loving father and because he's a loving father, he just longs to, to love others and so he creates this world, everything in it. It's good. And creates man and woman. Everything's great. They turn their back on him. Spite him. And the world is full of corruption so quickly. Within three chapters, there's murder. Wickedness. Just, just people saying, I don't want a bar of you, God. And God's response to that, it's not, it's not, well, fine then, I would, I'll just destroy you all. Although he could do that and he would be worthy of our praise even if he did. But his response is to send his one and only son for us. A son who was born into poverty and squalor. A son who was so full of love and grace. You know, I was reading this morning in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is walking by through Jerusalem. He sees a funeral brigade going by, a funeral march. He sees this mother weeping, and she's a widow, and her only son has died. Jesus just looks at her, and he just loves her. And he comes over, and he touches the boy, and raises the boy back to life. He looks at people suffering, and he's so full of love. He's so moved by people that are suffering, that don't know God. He sees them and he says, sheep without a shepherd and loves them. But he doesn't just love people. He comes, he lays down his life for them to take in full the penalty they deserve, that they might be made right with God. And then three days later rises from the dead, is seated in heaven and with us eternally by his spirit. How good is that? How much a privilege is that to know Christ? That, that God himself, full of grace, would dwell permanently in and through us, with us forever? How good is that? How glorious is that? And Paul sees it and he gives his life to it. He says, Lord, you are so good. Take my life. Take it all. Just that your gospel might go forward. I just, such is his love for Christ. Friends, we, we grow all too familiar with the privilege of knowing Christ. But Paul doesn't only see just this glorious king who he's following. He sees more than that. He sees that the gospel is going forward regardless of whether he's a part of it or not. He sees grace all over the place. He sees how God is using him to, to see people in, in the imperial guard become Christians. How other Christians are getting encouraged and going forward with the gospel. You know, the Philippians are worried. They're concerned. You know, Paul, if you die, is the gospel going to stop? And Paul's not worried. He knows the gospel is going forward. And he sees that the, 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 the advance of the gospel doesn't depend on him. He's just a part, one small instrument in what God is doing in the world. And so he rejoices in that. You know, church, we, we experience great joy even in opposition when we know that the advance of the gospel does not depend on us. Rather, we just get to play a part in what God is already doing. 
You know, Paul's sole passion is to glorify Christ. You know, if someone asked you, what's your number one passion? What are you most passionate about? What would you say? Well, Paul was a one passion man. He was passionate about Christ. He just wanted Christ to be known. He's motivated just by service to Christ, not by what people think of him or what they say about him. And so we experience joy even in opposition when our, jo- when our, when our passion is to, is to glorify Christ. You know, I get so disappointed when I make things about me because I'm disappointing. But when Christ and him glorified is what I care most about, I rejoice even in my failings if he's made much of. More than that, and finally, Paul had received the fruit that comes from giving yourself to serving Christ in the advance of the gospel. You know, church, do you, do you realize that God calls you to partake in his work for his glory? Yes. But also for your good. Did you know that? That he calls us to join with him in in, in introducing people to Jesus, talking to them about Jesus, not just for his glory, but for your good. You know, Jesus says it this way. In John chapter 4, he's speaking to his disciples. And he says, do not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Why? So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus says, look, there's a harvest. It's plentiful. And you haven't worked to produce it. I've done the work. God himself has been working. And I'm sending you out to reap that harvest. Why? Because I need you? No. Why? So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. God has called us to be part in what he is doing in the world. Why? Because he wants you to taste something of the joy. Isn't that good? Now, have you ever wondered why God doesn't just zap people and make them Christians? Like, boom, oh, there's another one. It's because he wants us to experience something of his joy at seeing someone come to know and love him. Isn't that beautiful? You know, Paul, in his letter to Philemon, says it this way. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I'm praying that as you share your faith, it might work in you. For what? That you might know all the goodness we have in Christ. You know, God doesn't call us to 
join in what he's doing because he needs us. No, he calls us to join in serving him in the advance of the gospel, yes, for his glory, but also for our good. You know, so often when I'm anxious or down, I just have to ask myself, have I recently shared Christ with someone? Have I recently spent time with one of my unbelieving friends and shared with them about Christ? And so often the answer is no. You know, there's something about when we fail to partake in this amazing opportunity that God has for us, that our eyes become insular and we miss all that God has for us and all that he's doing in the world. He has made us and he has called us to join in his work of the spread of the gospel. He's calling us to join in what he's doing. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss the thrill. Just even this week, hearing of uh, one person in church requesting prayer, their friend was an atheist, in a married to an atheist, and God's stirring in their life, and so now they're, they're praying for their kids before they go to bed. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? Isn't that where God is working in and through different people in this church? There's this amazing joy that comes from partaking in what he's doing. We have an amazing opportunity. There is this freedom to be found despite circumstances. There's this joy to be found despite opposition when we join Christ in the advance of the gospel. My prayer is that as we consider Paul and his example, we would not miss the freedom and the joy to be found in serving Christ in the advance of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning with thanks in our heart for your goodness, Lord. Thank you so much that the work of the gospel does not depend upon us. Lord, if it did, there'd be much cause for anxiety, but it rests with you. Lord, thank you for the amazing opportunity to join with you in what you're doing, that we might rejoice together with you. What a privilege. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who, when it comes to sharing their faith, they feel weak. They feel inadequate. Lord, thank you that you are a God who works in the midst of weakness, that you are always present with us, that you are doing the work, and that you will bring that work to completion. Lord, may your gospel go forward in this church. May people come to know you in and through this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.